Hello, and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Centre here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Phelan U.S. Centre's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, I spoke to Dr. Fiona Hill, who is a senior fellow in the Centre on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Programme at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Hill served as a Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the U.S. National Security Council from 2017 to 2019. From 2006 to 2009, she served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia, the National Intelligence Council. She is author of There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century, published in 2021, and co-author of 2015's Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin. Dr. Fiona Hill joined us on June 15, 2022, to discuss the U.S.-Russia relationship, the war in Ukraine, and NATO expansion. So my first question is, Vladimir Putin's relationship with President Biden is, of course, very different to his relationship with President Trump. How would you say the change in president has affected the U.S.-Russia relationship? Well, the relationship between President Biden and President Putin is actually quite long-standing. I mean, if you really think about the fact that Putin has been in power for 22 years, coming up on 23, basically by the end of this year, Biden has encountered him on many occasions over that course of this long term. Biden, of course, was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was the vice president of the United States under Barack Obama. And now he's the president. And, you know, in between, he's obviously been out and about, still fully engaged in foreign affairs. So I'd say that President Biden, in many respects, had Putin's number. Putin was not a surprise to him. And Biden was not a surprise to Putin. So I'm not sure that that personal relationship greatly affected the overall tenor of uh, the US-Russian relationship in you know, any really substantive terms. But of course, it did have an impact on the way that they interacted. President Trump had not met Putin before, before he got into office. He kept saying that Putin was his friend and that he thought they were going to have a wonderful relationship. And people assumed that they had met, but they actually had not. So Trump was, let's just say, a kind of a newcomer to the scene for Putin, although Putin had been observing him very carefully, as um, is his technique, trying to kind of figure out what Trump's vulnerabilities were. But for Biden, Trump, sorry, rather Putin, rather than Trump, I'm getting myself confused here between Trump and Putin, which is sometimes a little easy to do, I have to say. But Putin also knew exactly what to expect with Biden. But I think that where there has been some impact has been on the issue of Ukraine and of Russia. For Trump, Ukraine was just not an issue at all. We know from all of the events that transpired toward the end of his presidency and the first impeachment trial that for Trump, everything was very personal. He didn't see Ukraine in a foreign policy national security perspective. And he was not likely to really kind of step up in any way if Putin had put a lot of pressure on Ukraine. Whereas for Biden, despite all of the noise around you know, Biden and you know, various personal issues related to his son and other things that often appear in the US press, Biden has seen Ukraine right from the very beginning as a national security and foreign policy issue. There isn't a personal element despite all of the noise around that. And Biden was not of a mind of negotiating Ukraine away. So when we enter this confrontational phase where Putin has started to amass troops on the border of Ukraine, and Putin is making feelers out to see how far Biden is going to go, he realizes that there's not going to be any kind of negotiation with Biden. Biden is going to be sticking to the kind of principles that he has all the way time along. And I think that that's kind of part of the calculation for Putin of deciding that he wanted to use force uh, to try to get 
US attention and to try to push Biden to the negotiating table. Thank you so much. So would you say this is the lowest point of Russian-American relations since the end of the Cold War? Well, it's fairly obvious it is. I mean, we've had a lot of low points all the way along the way. There have been many junctures where the relationship has taken a more confrontational turn. But of course, we haven't been in a situation where we have the largest war in Europe since World War II. So it's fairly easy to say that, yes, this is pretty much the worst situation that we've been in before. And this is on Putin. He did make that decision on February 24th to invade Ukraine. There's all this chatter about, was there a provocation? And uh, you know, as I just said, there was an element in which Putin thought that he had to show force because he saw that Biden was pretty fixed on the idea of having Ukraine there as a major foreign policy national security element in, uh, in US policy, and that Biden wasn't going to go negotiate Ukraine away or negotiate the United States' relations with NATO, for example, away. You have to remember that in December of last year, the Russian foreign ministry put forward two sets of demands to the United States and NATO, basically that NATO pull back from its positions in Europe to 1997. So before, in fact, the enlargement of NATO, the US pretty much pull out and pull out of all of its deployments of troops and also missiles. And also, of course, the demand that Ukraine step back from any kind of interest in joining NATO and in fact declare itself to be neutral and even to go as far as demilitarizing itself. But I think irrespective of that, Putin has now made his hand very clear that he has all kinds of other ambitions about Ukraine. He made that decision to invade. It wasn't triggered by anything very specific in uh, the moment. But now, of course, it has affected every single relationship between Russia and every European counterpart, and also globally. So this is the lowest point in Russia's relations with NATO, the lowest point in Russia's relations with the European Union, and the lowest point in Russia's relations with pretty much every European country. Thank you. You covered a lot of this already. So there's a lot of arguments that claim Russia's invasion of Ukraine is NATO's responsibility because of its expansionism that you've, that you've mentioned. What are your views on these arguments? NATO's obviously got some role in this. And you know, I already mentioned this in the kind of large sweeping overviews here of uh, those initial questions. But if NATO hadn't existed at the end of the Cold War, if we dismantled it same time that the Warsaw uh, Treaty Organization fell apart, I think you'd be pretty certain that some other European security arrangement would have emerged with a transatlantic component. And that would have been an affront to Russia as well. They would have probably called it NATO under other means. We know that the Russians didn't like the idea of the European Common Security and Defence Policy either, particularly if that had impact on European security. They wouldn't have liked the idea necessarily of a European military what Russia would have been content with is just basically countries engaging in some kind of bilateral defense agreements so that no European power or military power could have been a match for Russia. It's very clear from everything that Putin has said, and again, we should pay close attention to things that he has said because he has laid it all out there, that his belief is that there should be no other military power in Europe apart from Russian military power. In other words, nothing that could counteract or stand up to Russia. The whole idea of pushing for countries to be neutral and to neutralize themselves and to demilitarize makes it very clear. And who were the first countries that wanted to join into NATO after the dissolution of the Warsaw Treaty Organization? They were the very countries that had been invaded by their fellow member of the Warsaw Treaty Organization, the Warsaw Pact, the Soviet Union and the Red Army. They were Hungary, which was invaded in 1956. There were the Czech Republic, and Czechoslovakia, as it was, was invaded in 1968 by the Red Army. 
And it was Poland, which wasn't invaded, but of course put itself under martial law in the early 1980s under the same threats. And I suppose we could also talk about Germany in 1953 when there was the, also the kind of menace against the then divided Germany. So it was other countries of Eastern Europe uh, basically calculating that Russia was also always going to be a security risk. And now we see, of course, Finland and Sweden wanting to join NATO, not because they feel forced by some action on the part of NATO headquarters. There's not some central authority that's dragging them in. They are looking at the long-term situation with Russia and deciding that now the security situation in Europe has completely changed. The Finns will tell you that they think that the European security mechanisms now at an end and that all that is left standing is NATO. And by that, they mean it's the end of the Helsinki final act, the Helsinki process, the whole Helsinki security arrangement that's supposed to keep the peace, the OSCE, the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe. And with, they don't want to have a return necessarily to the NATO of the Cold War, but they see NATO as being the only mechanism left, that EU security mechanisms are not sufficient to build a new platform for moving forward. Because we are now entering a period in which Russia can clearly mobilize and invade another country under the guise of exercises without any clear causes by but only because they feel that country is going in a different direction. And as the Russians are saying that Ukraine is actually part of Russian territory, Peter the Great has been invoked by Vladimir Putin, basically saying he's only doing what previous czars did, then regathering in Russian lands, lands territory that belonged to Russia. Well, Finland was also part of the Russian Empire. And so was Poland, Warsaw, the Grand Duchy of Warsaw. And so there is a lot of anxiety, not just in parts of the Finns, who would like to be now in NATO as Poland always, but also the Balts, because in the wars between Sweden and Russia... In the early 1700s, between Peter the Great and Charles XII of Sweden, it was those territories that were then incorporated into the Russian Empire. And so the feeling is, if, well, if Ukraine's going to go, we may go as well, or at least have to be put under a lot of pressure. So there's a lot going on here, and it shows that NATO is not just the whole issue. And the tensions between Ukraine and Russia also go back to the early 1990s. So before there was any kind of conception of the expansion of NATO, but just when the whole Soviet Union had come apart... And Ukraine and Georgia and some of the former Soviet republics no longer wanted to be part of the Commonwealth of Independent States, which had been created in the early 1990s. Thank you so much. So how does one accommodate a nation's right to choose what alliances to form? And Russia's claims that the expansion of NATO, as you've mentioned, creates conditions that itself Russia finds threatening. Well, we've talked about this, you know, for some considerable period of time. And that's what the OSCE was supposed to do with the whole Helsinki process in the 1970s. It was supposed to be marking that whole period of acute tension in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s. The whole process was to bring all of Europe into, and also Canada and the United States, and also many of the NATO members as well, into a common security space. And all of the various baskets that were part of the Helsinki process on economics and emphasis on people and human rights, they were all meant to address this very question that you posed. And Russia's basically said at this point, well, that's dead. That's unacceptable. And what they're wanting to have is then a veto over other security arrangements. Russia is actually denying Ukraine its security rights. It's basically saying, sorry, we can invade you because we are not basically acquiescing onto our view of security. And in fact, you may recall that Russia posed the question to the older members of the OSCE ahead of the invasion, this very question about how do you see this question of 
security where one country can guarantee its security, but not at the expense of another. But it didn't really work for the answers to come back again. And I mean, I think the message and or the answer from everybody else would be a situation where countries promise not to invade. And that's basically at the core of the OSCE process. And NATO, of course, was set up to respond in the event of an invasion, in the event of an attack on a NATO member, to sort of deter another country from contemplating it. But we see that overall in Europe, without that guarantee from NATO, an invasion is entirely possible. That's the message that Putin has basically said. He's actually reinforced the message of NATO, the very message that he has pushed back against. Thank you so much. How different can a new European security framework be from NATO? And how much monetary and military involvement should the US have in it? Well, that's a really good question. And I think it's the one that probably is going to be pondered here by students at LSE for quite some time, as well as governments, because we have to figure out how can we engage with Russia moving forward. We had the NATO-Russia Council, which was supposed to reassure Russia, in fact, that NATO was not arranged somehow in opposition to it. It appears at this point that Putin and the people around him in the Kremlin will not be convinced of that fact. And of course, we have a war that we don't know where it's going to end. How do we guarantee you know, the security of countries that are not in NATO? And that will create a great deal of uncertainty and instability on NATO's borders, or let's see the organization's borders with other countries. And the fact that Finland and Sweden now want to be part of NATO is a real turning point as well, because before we could think of security arrangements beyond NATO, and now it's going to be very difficult for thinking about these. So I think the dilemma is really about what to do with Russia and how to secure oneself against the uh, for every country in Europe, the threat of actual military invasion, but also political pressure, what we call hybrid attacks. We have the whole issue of what to do in the event of cyber warfare, political influence operations. We've seen sort of assassinations on our soil. We're sitting here in London, obviously twice. That's been very prominent, perhaps even more cases, certainly with uh, Alexander Litvinenko and uh, Sergei uh, Skripal. And you know, how we deal with all of those aspects of it is going to be extremely complex. I think it's extremely hard right now, as we're in the middle of a hot war and the devastation of Ukraine, to start to think about what those frameworks might look like. Now, of course, we have to, but there will be so many different calculations. I think part of it will be thinking about the right for defence, of self-defence. We have Article 51 of the United Nations uh, Charter. Uh, you may remember, of course, that Kuwait invoked that in 1990 when um, Iraq invaded Kuwait. And actually on the same premise that Kuwait wasn't a real country, Kuwait had actually been formerly part of Iraq in the view at that point of Saddam Hussein and that Kuwait was sitting on Iraqi resources. I mean, this is, these are all some of the arguments that uh, Putin has put forward as well. And there was a UN-framed coalition that the United States uh, played a major role in to basically expel Iraq from Kuwait. So can we come up with something of that kind of formula? You know, what do we do about the countries that are not in NATO? How do we do coordination between the members of the European Union? What happens with European common security and defence policy? Is the OSC completely dead? Can we really do a Helsinki 2.0 again? These are all major questions and I obviously don't have the answers to it because I think that this is going to be evolving. I think some of the answers to these questions will become evident as we move along in this you know, terrible war that is still unfolding here. Clearly what Putin wants to do is set the terms and I think we have to bear that in mind as well. That Putin is posing that very question but in reverse. He wants to get rid of NATO. He wants to have a very fragmented landscape in Europe, 
where Russia dominates, again, as the military power. And therefore, as the guarantor of security in the sense of if you do what I say, I won't invade you. I mean, this is a kind of coercive effort on the part of Putin. See what I just done to Ukraine. I said I was going to do something. Or actually, he actually did lie about this. Of course, he said he wasn't going to invade. But I said I would undertake a special military operation. And everybody else would be vulnerable to this as well if you're not paying due attention to Moscow. So we're going to have to figure out how to address that fact, I think, first and foremost. Great. Thank you. You mentioned students uh, before, and I'm just going to pivot slightly to talk a bit about uh, that aspect. Um, Your career has spanned academia, the US government, policy research think tanks. What would be your advice for students and younger people who want to become a foreign affairs specialist like yourself? Well, I would actually say that taking some history courses is pretty vital. I think right now we're seeing the revenge of history, Putin's version of history. I mean, somebody said to me the other day, who would have thought history can be so dangerous? Well, I think we all know that. There's so much manipulation of history that we've had to deal with in international affairs. So even if you're not taking history courses, I would you know, try to sit and audit some interesting lectures you know, here while you're there. Take advantage of being at somewhere like London where history is all over uh, the place and uh, reading as much as one possibly can in something of a structured way to kind of understand the sort of larger sweep of history. The problem we're contending with right now is that Vladimir Putin has only read Russian history from one vantage point. There's been no comparative aspect of it, no... European history or no world history at large. I would also say taking advantage as much as possible of opportunities to interact with, particularly here at somewhere like LSE, but also when you have a complex uh, of so many universities here with so many people from all kinds of different backgrounds and so many countries here in London of networking as much as possible. Taking advantage of the people who are around you, getting to understand different perspectives, different cultural perspectives, different um, perspectives that people who don't have English as their first language bring to something because there's a different way of thinking about things and articulating them. Finding out as much as possible in terms of thinking about um, on-campus jobs, opportunities to maybe work with a professor or somebody else in and around London with centres like the US Centre and the think tank-like entities that you have here at, um, at LSE. I think it's really just being as expansive and thinking about opportunities as possible. And also remembering that it's a lifelong learning process. I've done a lot of working with other people from different disciplines in my career. I mean, I realise that I've been very deficient in things that I've known about. So I've looked for opportunities to work with people who know things that I really have no clue about. And then how can I bring something to the table to work with them? So I spent a lot of time at Brookings when I first got there, working with Clifford Gaddy, who's an economist, 20 years older than me, very different background, whole different set of life experiences, but you know, a lot of really serious disciplinary heft in a field that I hadn't really studied. And so we would pool resources, you know, um, basically do an awful lot of brainstorming. And I got an enormous amount of out of that. There was almost like a, an extra master's class or a whole new, you know, PhD of being able to sort of work with somebody who was at a different stage and had uh, different perspectives on things. And I've always looked out for ways in which you could work in a group and again, learning from other people as well, because there's so much that you don't know that you should know in the world. And that's, um, I think, the real beauty of being um, at a place like this with LSE, all the kind of connections and different perspectives that you can pick up on. So just being open uh, to everything and open to all kinds of opportunities. Thanks. That's a fantastic sentiment. I just wanted to give you the opportunity because I know you had a book out last year. If you want to say anything about that or if there's any other work or things you're working on that's coming up that you want to promote that you think our listeners would be interested in. Well, look, I myself am doing what I think everybody is right now, just watching very carefully what's unfolding. And 
looking for any kind of opportunity to be able to nudge things in a more positive direction. I just want to warn everybody that we're in for the long haul here. Um, we shouldn't lose our nerve um, in many respects. There's a lot of temptation here to look at what's happening and think, okay, we need to try to find a way of resolving this right now. What's the end game? We need to pull back. Um, you know, This can't go on. Well, look, again, I think world history shows us that there is a tendency for events like this that we're grappling with right now to really be prolonged. And also that it's going to change everything that we've been taking for granted at the moment in terms of um, international affairs and international relations. And it's also an all-hands-on-deck moment. So again, I mean, I'm also looking for how can I work with others to try to understand this more. One of the reasons for being here, LSE, to this juncture as well, to try to you know fill in some other people thinking everybody else's uh, perspectives. And I would just sort of say to everyone, keep your focus on this crisis don't um, you know think there's an easy way out of it because unfortunately there is not. And this will be shaping the careers and the outlooks of everybody um, who's listening to this today. And there's going to be a lot of knock-on effects from it. And sort of having a 360-degree perspective on this, that's what I'm trying to you know figure out right now as well, thinking about the food security implications, the implications for non-proliferation in the nuclear realm from the, the saber-rattling that Putin is engaged in, and the whole way that this might actually create further rifts between the US, the UK, Europe, and the West, and the rest of the world that isn't necessarily seeing this conflict unfolding in the same way that we have. And we have to also then think about how do we engage more broadly. So again, this is one of those moments, one of those pivotal moments in history, and we're all part of it. And so what kind of role can we play? You know, Where can we be value-added? How can we work together with others to try to navigate our way through this? Actually, just to go off of a point that you just made, in terms of engagement because it does seem that a lot of this conversation and it makes sense is this west versus russia talk and i don't think it's lost on anyone that a lot of non-western nations have been quite reticent with this whole conflict what do you think that i suppose says about the way that this conflict is being portrayed that countries very important countries like india who i mean of course they've generally tended to be neutral but, you know, like India, like countries across the Middle East, across Africa have been not so pro-Western, pro-NATO. And, and is there a way that one could push for Western unity, I suppose, without being exclusionary? Yeah, I think that actually has to be what you just basically said there. Mm-hmm. That we have to figure out whether we can push for Western unity without being exclusionary to other mm-hmm. countries. And in fact, bring them into the discussion as well. We do need that bigger vision about this conflict. Mm. So, I mean, I think in the, just in the whole way that we've been framing it, that this is about the United States, about NATO, this is about Europe. And the Ukrainians get this as well, that this is a real dilemma. That's the root of the problem. Because many other you know, countries that are not part of the sort of Western institutions have looked at the role of the United States in the past. Mm-hmm. Sure, you're thinking this, many other people are thinking yeah. this. What's the difference with the United States invasion of Iraq? Mm-hmm. And the Russians are saying that as well. Well, there actually are quite a few differences between this, but it doesn't seem like it when you think about the structure of the conflict. The essence of the conflict, if you take NATO, the United States and Europe all out of this, is that Russia wants to take back, or the Kremlin and Putin want to take back lost imperial lands of Ukraine, basically saying that Ukraine is part of Russia. Ukrainians are not Ukrainians, they're actually Russians, so Belarusians, and we want to want to reconstitute the empire. So this would be, you know, let's say Britain wanted to go back and take Ireland Let's put it that way. That, mm-hmm. you know, the Irish have a very strong sense of independent identity. There was, of course, the whole independence struggle. But then the 
UK government says, no, sorry, you're still part of the British Isles. You've been kind of part of our polity for centuries. Mm. You know, we want you back, particularly because we're having disputes over Northern Ireland. Mm. And what if the United States decided to take Canada? Because Canada's English-speaking. Then mm. maybe there might be some sense of, this sounds ridiculous, but repression by the French speakers in mm. Canada. And Canada, at different points, you know, there was like expansions into Canada's territory. Let's take Canada. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't look like that from the other point of view of the rest of the world. Because there is that frame that uh, Putin has very uh, carefully put around it about this is about NATO. And a lot of people, of course, bought into it. People like John Mearsheimer and others basically think this is because of NATO. This is because of the incursion of NATO into Russia's space. Well, NATO, again, is a voluntary organization of collective self-defense but what putin is positing is no this is a u.s imperial move Mm -hmm. because of course after world war ii the united states did actually occupy parts of europe certainly Mm -hmm. germany but in the united states people don't fully fathom that but Mm -hmm. from the outside part of the world they say well what's the difference it's just a continuation of world war ii and the cold war of this kind of struggle over territory there so we have a very hard time explaining that and then i think that the united states and the united kingdom as well are very imperfect messengers on this point because there's a lot of resentment about the united kingdom in large parts of the world because of the colonial imperial era there's a book just coming out it's just come out by my former graduate school classmate carrie um, elkins carolyn elkins about the whole violence of the british empire and she wrote a previous book out of her dissertation about the after effects of the Mau Mau rebellion in kenya and you know, Britain doesn't look good in lots of parts of the world because of that imperial heritage. And the United States with Iraq, invasion of Iraq, and history of invasions in the past is also looked at askance. And Russia, as the successor state to the Soviet Union in parts of the world, is seen as being the supporter um, of many of the liberationist mm-hmm. post-colonial movements. Although, of course, the Soviet Union did that for its own purposes during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And so we have a really hard time, I think, unraveling all of this. And there's also the fact that, of course, other countries are suffering from the effects of this conflict. Food security, the loss of uh, grain exports from Ukraine, countries like Egypt, Lebanon, Israel. And then, you know, many of the countries are under an awful lot of pressure at the moment, Somalia, Ethiopia, Eritrea. So many countries now are real predicament. Are they going to be helped? Same thing with energy. You know, elsewhere in the world, they, they see that in the UK and in the United States and Europe, people are worrying about energy. And they, well, what about their situation as well? Are they going to be helped if they actually come out in support of Ukraine? And then there's all of the countries, you mentioned India before, who worry about their relationships with China and who have looked to Russia as a major provider of arms. And is the US or any other country going to step up and support them? Or are countries like India who it's not just getting Russian arms, but how to triangulate in this very difficult relationship with Russia and China and the United States. Is there going to be a block between Russia and China? What's US going to do about that? The US is often very critical about India. They'd just much rather not be part of this. And I think that that's another issue to try to address. And I don't think we're very good at messaging. I think we're not doing a very good job of communications. And we're also not doing a good job of this 360 degree view and understanding where other countries are coming from. Because if you're in the Middle East, you think, well, why didn't you do anything about Yemen? You know, or what happened to me? You invaded Iraq. And so what's your longer term vision, not just for European security, but for global security as well? If we come to the defense of Ukraine in some fashion, are you going to come to our defense? I think these are all issues that we have to address. So getting back to I know an earlier question about thinking about European security really has to be thinking about, as you said, a much broader vision. You know, are we going to emphasize Article fifty one of the UN Charter? 
are we going to try to reinvigorate the UN process? The Ukrainians are saying, heck, we should do. And if other countries then push back on Russia over the invasion of Ukraine, what will happen at the next time that this happens to another country somewhere? Then it's not an issue like Iraq and Kuwait and whole of global energy prices mm-hmm. are shooting through the roof. What if it's a regional conflict or a local conflict somewhere else in people's minds and yet it's the same structural problem? Will the United States and Europeans step up then too? Dr. Fiona Hill, thank you so much for speaking to us at the ballpark today. No, thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Fiona Hill is a senior fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at the Booking Institution. Dr. Hill also spoke at the Phelan U.S. Center event Russia, America, and the Future of European Security on Wednesday, the 15th of June, 2022. You can find a podcast of the event at lse.ac.uk forward slash united hyphen states forward slash events. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks so much to Dr. Fiona Hill for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Mohid Malik. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk, or send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.